0: ATS Lers, quick production note before we jump into the show. Anyone who lives in LA knows that the weather has just been pure chaos. So once again, Meg was facing some audio issues in this episode... It's a similar situation to a couple weeks ago where the first half is on her nice clean studio mic and then we had to switch to her phone. So we appreciate your patience. Meg has since met with her internet service provider and we believe the problem is fixed. Either way, I think we did a great job. It doesn't really interfere with the episode but we just kind of wanted to let you know before you jump in. It's an amazing conversation with network exec turned writer Kelly Edwards. Let's get into it.
1: Hey guys, welcome back to The Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg LaFove. And I'm Lorian McKenna. And today we're thrilled to welcome network executive turned diversity consultant turned writer Kelly Edwards.
2: Kelly's multifaceted career has multiple phases. She has worked in development, platforming shows like Living Single, Girlfriends, and Malcolm in the Middle. She has also worked as a diversity executive for studios like HBO and NBC Universal, ushering diverse creative talent for NBC, USA, Sci Fi, Bravo, and Telemundo. Now, Kelly has taken her decades of producing experience to do the very thing we talk about on the show, which is to write. And Kelly has sold multiple scripts and was recently staffed on a scripted show.
1: Having worked as both an exec and a writer, Kelly has an understanding of our business from both sides, which is the main focus of her recent book, The Executive Chair. Hi, Kelly. Hello. So wonderful to have you here.
2: I'm really, really thrilled to be here. Thank you. And before we jump into Adventures in Screenwriting, we have a cool thing happening where we're going to do an episode about uh, horror stories from your pitches. So if you want a chance to share your sort of funniest, strangest, or, you know, cringe inducing pit stories with us, uh, you can call our voicemail and leave a message describing your uh story and we will uh, put it on the air. So the number is, this is our special TSL voice mailbox at 440-305-0690. That's 440-305-0690. So call us and leave us a story. That's awesome. And Kelly is
1: game for our uh, adventures in screenwriting. She's going to talk about her week with us, which thank you so much for coming along on our little bit of a ride here. So Lorian, how was
2: your week? oh, it was fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. No worries over here. But what I wanted to talk about is that I had a couple of general meetings this week and one was amazing. We connected. It was so fun. We're laughing and talking, like hardly even got to like the work part. The other one I had, it was clear right from the start that there was no connection between us. It was just super awkward. I tried my best, but then I was like overperforming, like really pushing it. Like, look at me. I'm so cute. Don't you like me? Like, my people pleaser hat was like, it just kept growing and growing throughout the call. It was so clear this person wanted to get off the Zoom. I think it lasted like 20 minutes, and that was long for the call. And I got off and I was like, huh. Now, a couple of years ago, if that had happened, I would have gone into a weird shame spiral and my career was ruined and everything is terrible. But like, I don't know what was really going on with that person. And also, sometimes you have a bad general, you just do. And I can't like I have so many other things to worry about and things to write that I can't let that take me down. So that's progress in terms of my personal and professional development. But sometimes you have a really bad meeting and sometimes it
1: doesn't connect.
2: Like you just didn't yeah. connect
1: or who knows yeah. what happened to him right before he got on that call. Yeah. Like, yeah, you know, they killed his favorite project. Who knows what the heck happened?
2: Right. And but I was but I did feel myself doing that thing where like I wasn't getting what I wanted back. So I was like pushing. Pushing and pushing. And it was like, okay, that's a note for me. Maybe just chill next time. <laughs> you know, like, shh, it's okay. Not everyone has to like you. You don't have to always be like super likable, yeah. I guess. Anyway, but yes. True, so true, that true. was my week, some of my week. That's what I wanted to bring up today. Kelly, Kelly, how was your week?
3: Well, first of all, I can completely relate to your bad general because I've been on the the receiving and the giving end <laughs> of bad generals in my life. And yeah, you're right. Sometimes you just don't connect. I, I find that people have a, who have a very particular sense of humor that I don't get, like, you know, right away, if they're on a different plane, I have a, a friend of mine who used to write for The Simpsons and we never understood each other's, you know, we just never got each other. And yet I can still enjoy him. But I know that that's not going to be a relationship that I'm going to ever you know, we're not going to be hanging out together in Italy, you know, we're not going to, our friends are are not going to be the same. So, you know, it is what it is. But my week was pretty good because I was in Montana, which is where um, I spend some of my, uh, my year, a lot of my family lives up there. And it was really hard to come back to Los Angeles. So as I was getting on the plane, I was looking out and the, the, the airport is tiny. It's, it's like what I, You know, if you remember Casablanca at the end of Casablanca, it's that small. It's like one little tiny building, um, which is actually a big change from where it was last year, where it was a tinier building. But you just go, there's just a beautiful vista and it's just mountains and they're covered in snow right now. And the air was brisk. And I just go, I just don't know why a human being would want to go anywhere else. It's just so beautiful. So it was hard to pull myself away, but I'm kind of happy to be back in LA to see some friends and, you know, connect. Well,
2: welcome back. It's raining again. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? What's up with that? <laughs> I know
1: it's crazy, but I love it. It's good. We need it. Um. All right, I'll do my week because I really want to get on and, and talk to Kelly. Um, I just, I had an experience where I just wanted to bring up to our listeners, especially emerging writers, but honestly, any writer, which is, and I think it speaks to what we're going to talk to Kelly about today. Um, When you're pitching on, ip or a rewrite to get a job um i so much of that is also them seeing if they want to work with you meaning um do we click the whole thing about clicking but also you know what is your attitude are you having fun doing this or is this a chore for you because if it's already a chore as an executive i just remember myself like why would i want to like spend the next two years or six months with this person because it's already a chore they want you to be confident uh, and love what you're pitching, but they also want you to listen. Like, does this person listen? Um, does this person take my ideas? Like when, when you're in the pitch, sometimes they'll start throwing out ideas or they'll say, is this what you mean by that? And can you kind of have this conversation back and forth? You know, they're really definitely looking for your vision. Um, it, being on being the writer, it can be hard sometimes because you feel like they've got an idea of what they want this to be. They already have all talked about it. Why aren't you just telling me so I can know? but so much of it is, well, what is your vision? They want to be surprised and be inspired by your vision. But um, it just, it just struck me this week doing it. My husband and I are pitching on a job and it just struck me. Oh, so much of this is, are they entertained on the call? Not just from the story, but from you, like do they want to do this with you and give you notes and how do you receive notes? And so sometimes those calls can also be about, um, are you relaxed? Right. And, and kind of uh, fun to be with. I think they're always going to pick the vision and the version first, and maybe Kelly can speak to that. Um, this is for a feature. Um, but I think it's important too, in terms of uh, relaxing a little bit and having a little bit of fun with it and talking to them as human beings, right? Cause I think we can get so intimidated by the executive and they're judging me versus like, how are you? And look, what's behind you. And, or, you know, in terms of the zoom or, you know, just letting it kind of also be friendly and just two people talking and hanging out and talking about a story. So, um, that was my week. Oh, and oh, the last thing I would say is I think it's also good when you you have to be willing to not get it, right? So that you can relax in that call. Like you're willing to not get this. I'm just gonna have to talk to you guys and tell you what I love and I'm willing not to get it if this isn't what you want. Um, because in my head, I'm like, I'm willing not to get this because I'm establishing a relationship with you. So at the very least that'll happen. Unless I'm a complete like shut down, weird, scared person, <laughs> then I may not establish a good relationship with you. um so I thought that was an uh, a, to bring up today. and i also thought it spoke to a lot of what um um Kelly is has such amazing mm-hmm. insights uh, on, especially in her book. so um, so let's let's get to the let's get to the good stuff. Let's get to Kelly.
2: We always start with how did you break into the business? And what I'm really interested in is like, In your book, you say, I got back to writing. So I want to hear like, how did you like, what was the spark that got you interested in, in Hollywood and storytelling?
3: Wow. Okay. So that's going way back to the dark ages, because I think as most of us um, have the same kind of, I don't know, ignition point where, you know, when you're somewhere around 13, 12 or 13, and you're deciding who you're going to be in the world, um, it was the same thing for me. I I thought uh, I really wanted to be in the entertainment business because my mother was a dental hygienist and one of her clients was a guy who worked at Fox uh, and he was a CFO and he happened to always give her, you know, great swag. So I was getting all I was the beneficiary of the, all this and I would I would go by on my way to dance class on the bus from school to to my dance class and it passed by Fox and I thought, oh, I want to work there. But I always thought I wanted to work there because not only did it look so magical, but also I knew that this guy worked there and he wore a suit and he sat behind a desk and he bossed people around. And I thought, I want to do that. So that was my vision. Or I wanted to be like a dancer. And I was like, I wanted to be a ballet dancer. I wanted to, you know, dance on toe. And I did not really want to be a a modern dancer. And I just did not have the ability to do that. And yet, when I go to college, the next year into college mtv happened and i was like well i could i missed my calling if i just stuck with the dancing thing i could have been an mtv dancer i would have been a j-lo or you know maybe not quite as talented but i would have had a, a career of some sort did um, j-lo get her start on in living color yes she did yeah That's yeah, yeah. Right. i remember that yeah yeah there's i have this whole story there was a, a, a i don't know how many people know this story but um if i can just digress for two and a half seconds so she was on In Living Color, and then we put her in a really tiny role in a show called South Central, and um, I had gone into my bosses, and I think I was probably director level at the time, and I had a list of, here's who we should make deals with, and j was one of the people, and of course, she wasn't J-Lo then, but I said, like this this young woman who we put in this pilot, she's really something, and we should make a deal with her, and they poo-pooed me and laughed me out of the room, and I said, no, 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 really, she's going to be doing this movie and, about Selena, and We're going to want to have her in our back pocket. And they nixed me. And of course, cut to, you know, Mm -hmm. one of the biggest stars in the world. And that's always what I kind of like to hold up as an example of when people are always looking these days at data, data can tell you what did happen, but it doesn't tell you what's going to happen. It doesn't tell you what the vibe is. It doesn't tell you what people are watching or what they're looking at coming. That's coming down the pike. It can only tell you what people have looked at in the past. So sometimes you just got to go with your gut. And if we'd all gone with our gut, we would have been gajillionaires by now. But but getting back to the, the trajectory, I, around, you know, 13, 14 years old, I knew that I wanted to be in the industry and I was writing short stories and I was writing my own little plays and creating my own little magazines at my house. And when I um, got out of college, one of my first jobs was as a writer's assistant, and I loved it. I loved being in production. It was back in the old days of, you know, multicam. And I got a chance to work with some really great talent. And um, and then I didn't really find that there was a path for me. I think, again, sometimes you have to see it in order to be it. And I looked around the industry and I thought, well, there are very few Black women in the writer's room that I could see. And I just did not feel... Feel that I could sustain a career, you know, at that time, the world just wasn't open enough. So I went the executive route and I think it was a great training experience for me. I loved it. I loved being near the writing process. I obviously didn't have the, you know, being a writer is torturous and yet it can be great. So I didn't have the torture part of it, but I could sort of tell people, Hey, here's where I think, you know, we might be able to do better. And, um, and I found, I found it incredibly fulfilling. And there was something really, really exciting about seeing other people's visions come to life and seeing their, their dreams come true. And it's it's intoxicating. It's, um, and so I sort of, I just loved, I loved that trajectory until, until it was time for me to do it on my own. And that trigger was, uh, the big trigger for me was in 2015. Uh, I separ- uh, I, I'd i already be separated from my husband, but we filed for divorce. And it was that year, I think it was around July or August, where I looked at my life and I thought, well, what happened to that 13-year-old girl who wanted to be a writer? And why was it okay for her to give up those dreams? Because, you know, as a as a wife and a mother, you tend to pour all of your energy and all of yourself into other people. And so I was giving away everything, including my ideas. So every, somebody would come into my office and they go, well, I'm struggling with this idea. And I I'd go, well, I actually wrote something that's sort of similar here. Let me give this to you. And I kind of felt like at a certain point, well, let me, even if I'm not going to show anybody my writing, let me go back to it. I had I had been writing for myself the whole time I'd been taking class, but I hadn't really been finishing things or doing things that I would show to other people. It was sort of my dirty little secret. And I went back to it and I started to, to I'm, I'm going to say blog is such a weird term, but I started to write about my experiences of having given up my car in Los Angeles and I had, was starting to write about that. And so I put all these little short stories on Facebook and people would respond and they would love them. And, uh, and that feedback, just that positive feedback was enough to sort of unlock a little bit more of my courage. And then the big change was uh, in 2019 when I got into Sundance. I realized, oh my God, I, I'm my dirty little secret's going to be <laughs> exposed to the world. I better own it because all this time I've been telling people, "Hey, you can have your dream," and I've been denying myself my dream the whole the entire time isn't that classic? That's like a classic. Uh, it is classic.
2: <laughs> I feel know? that. I yeah, feel that yeah. absolutely. And Meg has talked about that journey as well. We all yeah. sort of, I think, come from a similar like producers supporting other people's vision. And then one day you're like, wait a minute, I want to tell my stories.
3: Exactly. And I've been so inspired Meg, by your, by because we we do have a very similar path and it's, you know, you feel like on the one hand, you know, you've been so good at and helping people realize their vision. And then when you want to do it for yourself, are you being selfish for wanting to do it for yourself, but also can you do it? You know, what if we go out and we flame out? Like that's, that's, you know,
1: well, you're gonna like, I mean, you have to go from being super good at something if you are, because if you're, you've been in the business that long and the experience, and then you have to go to being bad at something Yeah. like, because I don't care who you are. When you start writing, you're going to be bad at it. And even if you are good at it in terms of getting some great feedback, there's a lot of work to involved in getting that craft. So it's a big jump. And I so admire that you listened to that 13 year old girl who was still waiting for you to turn and see her. Um, and you did, and it's just, I just, it's so great. I just love it so much. Hey everyone, so the new version of Final Draft, Final Draft 13, is out. And, you know, the question's going around is it worth it? Is it worth it to buy or upgrade? And
2: our answer is yes. So I recently got notes on a pilot and I want to see how it works in my rewrite to move a couple of scenes. And usually what I do is, you know, cut and paste, uh, which works out sometimes, but mostly it means I lose text because I move so quickly. But the new version of Final Draft has this cool feature called Navigator 2.0, where you can actually just move scenes around right in your script. So without losing something, I can see what's working, what I'm missing, or what needs to be rewritten, or, you know, if I have to lose the scene altogether. But it's really, really helpful. And what's most important to me about this is that I'm not losing anything. Woohoo! Yes. I am laying out a new
1: project, and I want to card it. And I can now do that inside of Final Draft, and it's now a super easy way. You can take those cards and then make them into an outline with a simple drag and drop. So it's just a great way to see the larger story that you're writing and get down the details, track characters. I just love it. And for our emerging writers, a great new feature is Final Draft lets you set writing goals like page count or timed writing sprints, which is super cool.
2: So uh, we think the new version is really worth uh, investing in. So you can head over to finaldraft.com to get the new version with a discount code of screenfd for 25% off you should check it out
1: that's screenfd s c r e e n f d i
3: i've been i've never been happier you know and i was pretty happy before but i really have never been happier and um and that first moment of setting foot in Sundance I knew I knew from the second the the lady greeted me off the plane I knew that I was in the right place that I was living I had been sort of living on the you know on a dividing line and I needed to step onto the other side so it was fantastic that whole like three and a half days I I sobbed through the entire experience it was amazing and then um and then I decided to make that leap so and thankfully so far it's worked out and I think even if if it all went away tomorrow, I would have really, really loved the experience that I've had so far. So I don't regret it at all,
1: you know? Yeah, that's so true, right? Like if you know when you make that choice and you step over that line and you know that even if it is all going to flame out, I'll never regret having stepped over that line. That that was – you made such a great choice. Um, you know, you say – so you made this, it's so funny because we're talking about your definition, right? The people, how people see you and how they define you versus how you're going to define yourself and step over that line and raise your hand and say, I'm a writer. You know, you talk about, you believe that it's important for us to define ourselves early because the business can define you, which I think you can also get trapped in if you're an executive wanting to write that the business has so defined you as what your value is that it's hard to step over. Um, You know, can you talk
3: a little bit about that for our writers out there and how to define themselves? Sure. And I will say, too, um, that I I actually recently had a conversation with somebody about defining yourself as an executive. And I will tell you this little tiny um, little anecdote about when I was at UPN, which obviously for the younger folks out there doesn't exist anymore. It became the CW. Uh, I remember at one point being a little frustrated that I was not getting the the calls for other executive positions, whether I would take them or not. But that my counterpart was, and she didn't have as good of a reputation as I did in the industry. And I realized that I needed to do a little work on promoting myself better. And so I wrote down like the three things that I wanted to, I wanted my rap to be, I wanted people to, to sort of think about me. And one of them was something like, I wanted to inspire, I wanted to be inspirational. And then I wanted to, I can't remember what the third one was, but the other one was, I wanted to be known as a, an advocate for for writers, in particular, I want to be an advocate for the talent. And so, what I would do is every meeting that I went in, uh, you know, internal meetings, external meetings, I would just say, you know, people keep saying that I'm a really great advocate for talent. Oh, people really love my creativity, you know, da da. da. And I would just start to <laughs> talk I about that this until other people started to parrot back. Oh my god, I've heard you're so good with talent. Oh my god, you are such a creative advocate. And it it really did help. And I started to get those same sort of calls that I was missing on before. But I think that we, you do have to set yourself up as a, people have to know who you are so that they can come to you for that thing. And and I do think that sometimes people make the mistake of saying, oh, I, I do everything. And then if you do everything, I don't know what to do with that. We are all so limited in our ability to, we only have so much time as an executive, you only have so much time in the day. You can only basically do one or two things for whoever is, you know, sitting on your sofa at the time and you want to help them move forward if you like them, you know, as you sort of say, sometimes those relationships and those general meetings can, they can go go south, but they can also be prep for a, a relationship. And I always think that those first meetings are never to get the job. It's always just to establish relationship because you're one of a list of people that they probably have, you know, that they're looking at. And so this is a let's get to know and let's see is Meg somebody I want to sit around you know for a couple days with on a set is she going to be is she gonna push back on the notes that I give her you know how cool is she am I going to introduce her to my you know my friends and my colleagues or is she gonna you know be a pill so you have to figure out you know you have to understand that those those are setting up a relationship for a lifetime it's a career We're not just getting one job. We're establishing the fact that we're going to be in this business together for, if we're lucky, 40 years. And everybody knows everybody and everybody's two degrees or three degrees of separation. Everybody talks to each other. And if you get a bad rep in a meeting, it's going to follow you. So you better be on your game and you better be, you know, kind to people, but you can't necessarily expect that that it's going to be transactional and that job is going to materialize. So I totally forgot what your question was. (laughs) (laughs) I do
1: that all the time. I do that all the time. It was just about defining yourself and for uh, writers entering the business, how does a writer define themselves?
2: Yeah, you have a great exercise in the book with like the seven tick marks.
3: Yes. So what I love to do with folks who I'm either coaching or in a program with is have them create their, crafting their personal narrative um, schematic, I guess I'll you'll call it diagram, which is this oval in the center of a page. I used to do it on gigantic pieces of page, uh, pieces of paper that I would put up on my wall, you know, those gigantic 3M sticky notepad things. And now I have a, I have a lovely little whiteboard and I can do it here. But, you know, you do a big oval and then it, you sort of draw what looks like a bug. It's got seven little tick marks around the edges. And in one of those, each one of those tick marks is a talking point that, you know, you're going to sort of, when someone says, Hey, tell me about yourself, then you're going to have a um, kind of a diagram for, for that conversation. And you start off with where you're, where you're born, you put in, usually around that 13 year old mark, you know, what sort of inspired you to get in the business. And then usually the third one is about college. If you went to college, or if you didn't go to college, why you didn't go to college. And then you fill in the rest of them. And then the last one is where you are today. And then the one in the center I like to reserve for they're always going to ask you, and where do you see yourself? What do you want to do? And you have to have an answer for that. So that's a I draw that in there too. And again, none of this is you can't use letters, you can't use, you can't write things, you can't use numbers. You have to draw it because it's going to unlock that other side of your brain. And you'll remember those visuals. And um, and that's gonna be gonna be the essentially the outline or the beat sheet for your personal story. And then you're going to talk through that with someone and they're going to give you feedback on, Hey, it's a little long. Hey, I really loved it when you talked about your college experience or, Hey, when you talked about your, the movie that changed your life, you know, or the relationship you had with your father or whatever it is, you are going to lean into that. And you're going to know that that's the beginning of a theme for you And when you tell your story and usually when we tell our stories, there is a theme and it's usually resilience or it's love or it's change or it's, you know, adversity. There's, there's something that comes out in your story and you can latch onto that and use that to, to, to craft your narrative. And I would also say that the, there, what it also helps to do is when, when you have something in there for your birthday and your college experience or where you grew up or anything like that, you, you, are looking for ways to connect with that person. So if that person, you know, I, I was born in Florida. If that person was also born in Florida, then we have already, we've, we've made a bond a little bit more than we did when we first met each other. Or, you know, I went to Vassar college. Oh, somebody, you know, they might've known somebody who went to Vassar. They might've gone to Vassar. So there's always these ways of we, that we need to connect with each other and that we're trying to build these relationships and we're looking for points of commonality and, this kind of helps you remember that these are particular, you know, guideposts on, on how to do that.
2: So I do something like this, like I haven't done your exercise yet, but I'm really excited to, I'm intimidated because of the drawing part, but <laughs> um, I, I sort of start with, uh, I grew up in a murder town and this sets the stage for people to be like, what? And then I get to tell my stories because it sets up my, I grew up in trauma, but it's still funny. <laughs> right. And you so escape. <laughs> yeah. And I escaped. Yeah. Right. And my wow. theme is about escaping traps. Right. Oh, so like I started out that way. And uh so anyway, it's just interesting. Like it's just uh controlling your narrative, right? Don't let the business define you, you define you. I'm this, I'm that. Like that's a, a lot of emerging writers are asking us, how do you brand yourself? And it's like, I'm a writer, I'm an exec, whatever I am, and I'm this kind of person. So people start to parrot it back. I love that. Because before I got a show, I would just tell people I was a showrunner without a show yet.
3: (laughs) Well, that's that's the beginning. I think, too, you know, for writers in particular, people need to know what kind of thing they gravitate towards. What kind of stuff do they write? Are you a drama writer? Are you a genre writer? You know, are you a comedy writer? You know, so having having a handle on who you are is also going to help you explain to them what they can do for you. So if I'm going to tell you that I'm a, a comedy writer, that, you know, I'm only, I, I sort of, I love rom-coms or escapist material, then they're going to be able to say, oh, and I, I know who I should introduce you to. And then they're going to come up with a list of four or five people, and then you're off to the races. But if you go, hey, you know what, I, I can do everything, they're going to be stymied and they, you'll get nothing. There will be no more connective tissue <laughs> that happens. Yeah. Yeah. It will, it will die there on the vine.
1: So in the book, um, you know, as an exec, let's just say, even, you know, you've sat through thousands of pitches and pitching is a major focus of the book, you know, so can you talk a little bit about for our audience, what are some of the commonalities of a great pitch versus maybe one that wasn't so great? Dare we say mediocre?
3: Um, Yeah, I think um, and pitching, by the way, has changed so much. I think in the last, 20 years you know the way people pitch now obviously with zoom um it's a it's a different it's becoming a different kind of art form and you know I've I've always been a I've hated decks for forever I was like the last I was not an early adopter on the deck thing but now I'm into it and I think it's now helps because I'm going to just say execs don't have that much imagination when it comes to like you know trying to set tone they need comps and they need mood and it's like come on but at the same time if you if you you know if you have all these tools at your disposal use them wisely um i think some of the things that that work in great pitches are you know a great open um is really important obviously you want to talk about where the inspiration came from you want to talk about the world and why we're telling the story now you want to talk about um a really great character and remember television in particular is all about character um i feel as though those are the real components and then i i you know you can tell a story i've i've pitched things different ways even recently where i've done that those those kinds of set up the building blocks of the 30,000 foot view and why it's important to me and you know uh, who this great character is and why i'm the only person to tell this story and then i've done it where i just do the characters and then i tell a brief A little bit of a brief outline of what the what the pilot episode would be and i've also done it in ways where you weave those those characters through a pilot episode um i think however you're going to tell your story however it works for you um i think with the the difference between comedy and drama and i've sold both is that the uh there's such a reliance on story on the drama side that you may be able to get away with more you know jokes and more character bits on the comedy side. What I think is really interesting, and I've fought this quite a bit um in the last couple of years, and I'm now relinquishing my, I just cannot hold on to this, this, um, this uh anger that I feel about this, is the the question about there's two questions that people ask these days. One is which is what's the wound? And I'm like, I guarantee you that nobody asked. Marta uh, Kaufman, David Crane, what the wound was for each one of those characters and friends, I guarantee you that was not a question. And then, because you also don't know that Monica was a, you know, overweight kid until like season four. It's like you, you, nobody cared. Um, And then, uh, so that's number one question. And I think the second question is, everyone's sort of latched onto this word propulsivity. And nobody seems to understand what that means. And so this came up a couple of years ago where this is like 2021. I was pitching something. We were trying to get into Netflix for something. We were pitching something with a piece of talent. It was a big showrunner. And everyone kept saying this is about propulsivity. On the one hand, they were saying, well, we need to know, you know, how, why are people going to click next episode? You know, how do you continue to, you know, get people to move through, to get to, you know, if they get to episode three, then their then their completion rate is really high. And yet, um, I was like, but it's a comedy and it's standalone episodes. And you guys kept saying that you were looking for your next version of The Office or Modern Family. Guess what? They are standalone episodes. Right. Like you, there is no propulsivity. It doesn't happen. Is, is that like um, next gen
2: engine? Like when we talk about the story engine? Is that I like
3: so. well, I I actually had a conversation with a Netflix executive recently, and she said it's about the journey, the character's journey. Does the character have a journey? And I'm like, again, it's funny because you never thought of like anybody from according to Jim having a journey. Like nobody <laughs> there was no journey in according to Jim. There was no journey in essentially in Frasier. You mm-hmm. know, there was no journey. It was the same. The character reverted to the to the back to the old, you know, version of themselves by the end of the of the episode. So Right, but that when you get lit,
2: like your your point about like friends, like by seasons four and five, like they are having a journey, but it takes they years are. and seasons for us to be like, okay, I want something new. Like right. I want to, I want to keep going with these characters.
3: You and know, like I mean, argue, I will argue that I could have cared less that Ross and Rachel had a baby. Like I, like no. I don't, I didn't need to see them have a baby. I didn't need to see you know uh, mm-hmm. Monica and Chandler get married. Like I, I don't care. <laughs> I wanted the right. of just the episode itself so anyway those are the two things those are my two pet peeves now that said obviously you need to be able to you know answer those things now nowadays the world of pitching is requiring you to understand what was the damage done to this person and why that person is doing this thing as they're doing it and you need to know how how someone's going to come back to you know episode two because you know everybody needs to gain that audience and the The world has changed so much in terms of just, you know, broadcast to cable, to premium cable, to to streaming. And it's, it's, boy, is it going fast. It's just. Okay. So let's do a role play game. You
2: and I are working on a project together and you're my executive and I'm the writer. And uh, what advice do you give me? Like what to do and what not to do. We're going into the pitch. Like we're in the parking lot at Warner Brothers, right? (laughs) We're like going in or
3: i might be you know we're going in what is that that okay remember okay my my speech my little um locker room speech it's first Mm -hmm. take a deep breath calm down what you're establishing is a relationship we don't care if we're going to sell this project or not you might not but you're establishing a relationship because they are going to come back to you if they like you enough in the room even if you bomb on all fronts if they like you as a person they're going to invite you back and they might even bring you back a piece of material. They might give you some IP. They might say, Hey, what are you looking to do next? So relax. Cause we are, this is the long game. This is not, we're not doing this for the sale today. So that's number one. Um, number two, I would say as, as the executive, like if I was like your, your producer or your production, um, your development executive, mm-hmm. I would say I'm right here next to you. If, something happens. If you start to fumble, I will be there to pick up the pieces. Don't worry about it. So I will interject. I will vamp if I need to, you know, we can call it out if we want to, but we're going to go and have a good time. So don't worry. Don't, don't, don't tense up. That's I think great that's advice. Thing. And then I will do the windup for you. So I'll tell people how great you are. I'll warm up the room and then I'll do the clothes for you and then we'll see if we can make the sale. Okay.
2: Now you're the writer and you've just had heard this advice. Do you hear it?
3: Do I hear it? No, I'm in a panic. Exactly. Exactly. I'm I'm emotionally (laughs) shut down. I'm not even breathing at this point.
2: (laughs) Exactly. That's the thing. Like I've heard that speech like enough times to be like, yeah, that sounds great. But like in reality, like I'm, I have to pee and probably throw up and like, Oh my God, do I have a booger? And like, it's all, you know, (laughs) The stakes feel so high every single time, and like, yeah, and like trying to figure out how to calm yourself down so you can relax and have fun. I find that the minute I get in the room, I'm fine, but the yes. lead up is terrifying. Right?
3: Well, because we we create this like big big monster in our head that some we we have we played out all the scenarios of how it's going to be a disaster. You know, we we run those trajectories in our head, and we we see ourselves, you know, having a complete mental breakdown. And it never happens that way. No, it almost never happens that way. Okay. Like, can you I ask one... super
0: quick? Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. I was just gonna say, Lauren, if there are any major no-nos. I mean, obviously your experience as an experience as an exec and now as a writer, like it could be a cringy, is that what you're gonna say, Lauren, A cringy pitch story or something? Yeah.
2: I wanted like, give me a like a, a, a
3: specifics of something you saw.
0: Yeah.
3: Oh, yeah. I have one and I don't really I don't remember if I put it in the book or not. I had a pitch where I was there with my partner, Jonathan Axrod, and I, we'd taken in this writer, we'd pre-sold the idea, so the network knew that it was coming in, um, and about 10 minutes into the pitch, he stopped talking, like just did not say another word at all through the rest of the, of the meeting, and so Jonathan and I looked at each other, and we knew the pitch really well, And together we were sort of a comedy team anyway. And we just finished the pitch for him and we sold it. So it wasn't like it was a terrible disaster, but it was like, I, I never, it was like, he was such a deer in the headlights. I don't know that. I think he's left the business, honestly. Uh, I've never heard of from him since, but it was, yeah, he just literally just stopped. (laughs) I think all bodily functions just escaped to a halt And he didn't say anything. And I was like, you feel terrible for him. But it it was kind of hilarious at the same time. So, but we sold it. So, and by the way, when you talked about, you know, doing the, the wind up in the parking lot, I would love to be back in a room pitching in person because I find that the pitching over the screen is horrific. There's just the, you know, it's, it's my screen, your screen on the other side. And there's so many ways for people to tune out and to not you know, not really connect emotionally. And I can feel when I'm in a room, you can feel either it's going well or it's not going well. And I love the chase of how do I turn that no into a yes. And when I, and I didn't realize that when I was going to go from being a an executive on the, you know, network side to being a, a seller, how much I would love the chase of You don't love it right this second, but you're going to love it in five minutes. Like I, there's something kind of, I don't know, it's, it's maybe it's a sickness, but I kind of loved that turning that, the tide so that when you get that, it's just a little bit even more fulfilling, you know, when you know, you've got that sale.
2: So I have in-person pitches scheduled for next week and I'm so nervous. Like this is the first time since pandemic like everything's like I've pitched a ton you know since we've been in lockdown but I'm I've drive on I'm gonna go sit in the waiting room like be in person and you know it's a friendly room I'm friends with the executive but like still I'm nervous like what do I do with my body and how (laughs) how, like I've lost all that like you know because pitching on zoom is so different I'm like wait we have a deck like how do you do that in person like it's it's all I'm nervous I mean it's gonna be great I'm going to talk too loud. I'm going to laugh too loud. It's going to be amazing. But like,
3: you know, I it's like it's a we're starting to do that again. Yeah, so. I don't know how, how. do you do it? And or do you like throw it up on their screen? I don't even know how you do that anymore. She said then. her
2: assistant would handle it, and I'm like, amazing, love him. Um, <laughs> whatever he's going to do, whatever magic he's going to do.
3: Well, in the old yeah. days, we had to bring like you know big old poster board with photos on it, you know, or a or what you could do is actually print, you know, like um, directors do a lookbook and pull a lookbook out, you know, just have I'm them. in but it. this is next week and we have the deck. Like we're done. <laughs> I love it. Congratulations. That's great. You're in a room. I'm going to be in a room. I'm very excited. And they yeah. don't forget, they need you. They need you to bring in something great. They want you to bring in something great. Friends want to work with friends. So yeah. go get them. Sure. Go sell them. Can you talk a
2: little about the um, the why you? I pitched recently and someone was like, oh, I love that you put why you and you told that personal story at the front of the pitch. I'm like, that's how I learned how to craft a pitch. So it was surprising for me to hear that. So can you talk a little bit about how important that is, like how long it should be like that part of the pitch?
3: I think it's as long as, I mean, we're obviously working with a time crunch of everybody's got only 15 to 20 minutes worth of attention span anyway. So you're going to have to stick it in relatively Um, succinctly at the top of your speech but again this is something that came up it's like a a new development in the last 15 years or 10 years it it was never a question I never asked anybody before why are you telling the story you're just telling a story Um, but now that everybody's into personalizing this and they want to know that the the kernel of the idea is coming from something where they're going to be able to generate episodes from it um, I like to think and, and usually when I'm developing a piece of material anyway, I can tell when a project is not, I'm not using enough of myself, when I'm not touching the lava, as Meg likes to say, when I'm not really sort of doing that, the work of getting into the emotional piece of me, I can tell when it's ringing false. And I think when you bring a little of your personal story and there's some sort of um, connection point, then... You're it's you're easily it's easy to access multiple stories out of that, so I do think it's it's important. I recently had, I created a p- a pitch. I've got a deck now for it, um, and I think I'm gonna write the script. But it it was a um, an idea that was so deeply personal. I know for a fact it's only the only I'm the only person who can write it, and it's gonna force me to touch places of my childhood that I was terrified of going, what a great starting point. It's, I'm excited. I'm excited by that. And so I'm pulling everything for this main character from that. Now I'm making her a lot quirkier and a lot more interesting than I am. Cause I'm not that interesting, but, um, but the, the Genesis and the, and the creation of this character from the inside out feels very true to me. Um, and she suffered a tragedy at a young age that I suffered and because of that, the, the sense of memory is very, very real, and so I'm going to bring something to it that I feel like is going to kind of unlock a little bit of the magic to it. So I think anytime you can do that, you win. You're winning. You're getting a little bit farther down the road to what you really need to do, which is to really bring um, authenticity to to a project. You know, yeah. and that wealth of character and wealth of knowledge, which is totally why you were the right person to write this book. Right, you have this
2: unique experience. Ah, segway. I, I segway. Look at that. Um, <laughs> one of the things I found really valuable was when you defined
3: executive speak. There's just weird stuff that people say these days, and it, it just becomes like, um, problematic. But we do talk about the note under the note. We talk about making your character more likable, putting a hat on a hat, or, um, when I was growing growing up, when I was coming up, it was spin on spin. We just like to to be problematic and not and not say what we what we mean, because we don't want to be the bad guy.
1: I have found that
3: recently um,
1: when I was an executive, there was a responsibility to pass. And if you are a great executive, you might say why you're passing, likely 100 percent hurtful or anything, but just constructive. But now you just get ghosted. They never tell you why. You never even know you're officially passed on. I've done projects where I've turned in a draft and you never hear anything. You never hear any response. You never hear what they liked or didn't like. You don't know if they hired another writer. You don't know anything. And I find it shocking and disrespectful. I mean, have you have you found that at all? And the
3: difference that's kind of in the last couple of years? I do, I do think that people are, are much more um, okay with ghosting and I think, but that I think is a culture thing. I think that's not just here. I think it's become something that people do just in general. I think, you know, I've got three daughters in their twenties and you know, the world for them is different than it was for me. And so we made phone calls, they don't make phone calls. You know, they're afraid to text and, uh, or they want to text but they're afraid to write an email. It's like, so they're, the, the landscape changes anyway. But yeah, I think people are, oddly, they don't want to make a decision. So sometimes you have to just make the decision for them by, like, the, for example, I had, a, um, I had a pitch, this is like a couple of years ago, uh, a company, it was a really great company, they had fantastic properties, right up my alley, very like action female, escapist stuff. And they said, hey, would you like to have... X property or Y property, I said, well, I really love Y property because I feel like I could make it into a really great TV show. And I put together a deck and I pitched them the thing. And I know that I was the first one out the gate. And then four months go by and I didn't hear anything four months. And I was like, I knew you were a part, you know, in the beginning of your process, but Hey, how about even a you're in the mix or you're not in the mix, you know, go on with your life. And then about five months in, my manager calls and said, "Hey, they just wanted to know if you have a deck." And by that time, I was so furious that I said, "No, I don't have a deck." And I'm like, I literally showed you the deck in the meeting. You were taking notes on the deck, and of course, now, um, I mean, it's not like we burned a bridge or anything, but I was just like, I, I don't think I, I don't think it was, it would be too much to ask for you to be respectful of my time. And my
1: energy. Yeah, I think that's what I guess I'm trying to say to anybody out there who's listening, that's going to be an executive because you're out and I hope you're listening because you need to know what a writer's life is like. It's not going to endare you to writers to ghost them and just never respond, even if, yeah, it's a hard thing to talk about. We don't know or you're not in the mix. You know, what kind of relationship are you building by just ghosting them? I understand you know, communication changes and the younger generations, but I'm sorry, even if you're 20, if you're ghosting people, that's not a relationship that you want in the future. Right. It's, right. You're kind of saying, not only am I not going to tell you, and not only my passing, but I don't want to be in relationship with you in the future. Sure. It's kind of how I take it. Like the, to me, the ghosting is a bridge burning And uh, I just, I don't even understand it from a business point of view. You never know when you might want to go back to that, right? Or at least have the respect. Anyway, I will get off my soapbox. I want to make sure we have time to talk about the pipeline programs and diversity and inclusion that you've worked on. Um, You know, you know, why you fought so hard to keep these programs alive or create them. But I would love to hear your insight into the programs.
3: Oh my gosh. Uh, It's a, it's a five hour conversation. Um, I I think I've always been, I always felt like I was the loud mouth in the room. So even when I was at Fox, I was the person talking about, you know, diversity and inclusion. I was the person who was always having arguments about, you know, why are the white male writers coming in and pitching black shows? So when I was had finally had a chance to decide for myself what we were buying and what we weren't buying at UPN, I was putting a stake in the ground and saying we were doing these kinds of shows and showing this kind of diaspora of diverse communities and then hiring directors and writing staffs that that supported that. And then I found myself I did not expect to go the diversity route. This was not on my radar and it wasn't until I was shuttering the company with Jonathan at uh, Paramount this is in 2007 that someone at NBC called me up and said, "Hey, are you interested in meeting on this job? It's a diversity job. And I really literally did not know what it was, what he was talking about, but he was look, they were looking for somebody who had a special set of skills, somebody who had new writers and directors and can help the shows become more diverse, but also new executives. And for at that time, it was seven years. It's now been 23 years that I've been running color entertainment, which is a creative uh, networking organization for creative executives of color. And our goal is to provide community and opportunity and panels and discussion and leadership uh, programs and mentorship to those executives who are coming up behind us, behind my generation, who just need to, to bond together so that they don't feel like they're going crazy. There's just still too many microaggressions that are perpetrated on people of color in this industry. And so I ended up taking that job and getting sort of immersed in the the DEI space, and then I took that information and I capitalized on it over at HBO, and and like I said, I had it. I feel like the the benefit of is this I've been a part of people's stories that I probably wouldn't have been a part of, you know, seeing them get launched and opening doors for them, and you know, I use my relationships and my knowledge to help them expand their network of people. Um, i get I tend to get on my soapbox a little bit about the diversity programs because I for years have kept keep hearing people say, Oh, well, they don't work. and i'm I'm like, you are completely ill informed about the system and how it was keeping people out of positions. um they were it was ghettoizing writers before the programs happened. And the programs unlocked a lot of success for a lot of folks. The thing of it is, is that people don't go around talking about how they were the diversity hire. That's not a part of their resume. No one ever tells you, hey, guess what? I'm the EP of blah, blah, blah show, but I started as a diversity writer. Nobody, it falls off your resume. It fell off of mine. I never thought about talking about the fact that I was the first diversity hire for, for Fox when Fox was creating their programs. And I think they had six of us and then they ended the program, but I was called the minority manager of comedy development. If I had not had that opportunity to take that, that gig, I would not have gotten in. I would never, I would have left the business back in whatever year that was, 92, because the doors weren't open because people were hiring their friends and their friends all looked like themselves. And they were, it was a history of white males writing everything. Go look at every episode of just about every, you know, ABC TGIF show there. It was probably a stacked full of white guys so getting in was really impossible and what people failed to remember you know cuz i've lived this i was at the i was at fox at the time of these programs or or had probably was just at at upn at the time these programs were starting up that you if you looked at any of the big shows go look at the writers list of mad about you and at friends and seinfeld and those those things they were if they had one person of color on their roster, it was a miracle. And most likely those people didn't last for more than a season. If you go back and you look at when I was at NBC, we we had to look at the Jay Leno show and it was like 16 years of Jay Leno show. And there had been like a, less than a handful of writers of color. So if you think about all those people who made a crap ton of money for a long time and systemically pushed out anybody who didn't look like them, we needed programs and those programs were the launching pad for a lot of careers. So you cannot say that they don't work because they do work. I'll tell you what what the 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 challenge is. When you get into a program, um the reason the programs work so well is that they are an instant um level of validation for those writers. Those writers have cut through hundreds of thousands of or thousands of um resumes and samples to get to that place. So you're looking at maybe eight to ten maybe twelve fifteen people out of thousands who've gotten there so they are already great if I was going to look across the board at you know a, a thousand writers that top twenty percent are going to be great that ten percent are going to be fantastic doesn't matter it's it the numbers bear out all the time if you add in white men to that it's the same thing the the percentages are still going to be of people of color are still going to be relatively the same or high because they are just as good. They just don't have the relationships necessarily. They don't have the legacy. You know, there are a lot of people who grow up and we're talking about nepo babies, like in the press these days, there are a lot of people out there who are nepo babies and those, they may may or may not be the, the kid of, but they went to school with somebody who went to Campbell hall. Do you know what I mean? There's still that sort of old school, Hey, I'm going to help your son. I'm going to help your daughter. Those people are rarely the people of color. So we needed a a way in. And now that we've got the way in and we've broken in in through the, I'm going to say the bottom rung, and we've learned how to become showrunners, now those people are bringing other people in because, you know, this is, (laughs) I always seem to get myself in trouble with these kinds of statements, but I've never, ever in my entire career have ever had to have the diversity conversation with a person of color. Not a single showrunner did I ever have to say, "Hey, you should really be more inclusive." I've only had to have it with one kind of writer. So, the question is, who's got who's the problem here? If you don't have a wide enough range of friends, then you need to go meet some more people. You need to have some more generals because I guarantee you, your work product's gonna be better because someone's gonna bring to you a a character, a storyline, or some sort of something that you weren't expecting because they didn't all summer with you in the Hamptons. So let's figure out ways to make that organic. It's just that it's the, the problem is that it's never organic. You still have to work at it. And um. so I do think the programs work. The The trick of it is it takes about 18 months to two years to break a writer or a director. That's usually the typical trajectory of getting on staff or getting um, you know getting an episode but a program will help supersize that for a writer it 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 then means that they're immediately they've they've gotten picked up by representation so their representative is looking out for them for jobs and making introductions you've got the program administrators we're looking out for them, you've got a cohort of people that they've already just met that they're looking out for them, and then at, at HBO, we would do sort of a roadshow and take them to the CW and to Warner Brothers. Um, and we would have those conversations with the executives, so then there's that's another 20 people that they've met. Uh, and then I was using my personal capital to go, Hey, you need to know somebody at Sony, you need to know somebody at Paramount, you need to know, and so we would sort of Anybody you need to you need to know showrunners. Hey, let's make a di- do a dinner with some seasoned showrunners and some uh, and some newbies or some producing directors and some emerging directors and let's start some relationships, whatever it entailed. But that all of that work consistently made the difference when somebody who doesn't doesn't get in the program has to do that on themselves. So that's where the program sort of supersize a and and accelerate a career because you're going from, I have myself to work for, you know, to, to advocate for me to, oh no, I've got 20 to 40 people advocating for me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's so, so important. It's essential. It's essential. It's just essential. It's been so amazing to have you here. Um, we always end our show with the same three questions. Um, I'll start what brings you the most joy when it comes to your writing?
3: Oh gosh. Oh, uh, what brings me the most joy? Just that question fills me with joy, quite honestly, because I'm 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 now my my body is having a visceral reaction to it. Um I think it is, I'm kind of in the middle of it right now. I'm doing a rewrite on a screenplay and when you know that you've done well on a scene or something's clicked or you've figured something out uh i get giddy with excitement and i but i also feel like i can never be too far from my computer because there's it's for me it's like a little magical portal so i think the process as hard as it is and i think i love i love the show because you talk a lot about how you're fitting together the puzzle pieces and it's math and I go, yeah, but when the math comes together and you go, oh, that's what I've been trying to say. Oh, my God, that's, that's it. That's the heart of it. When the character finally speaks that truth, that's, I think, the most, that fills me with joy. That's lovely. So what pisses you off about writing? The math. <laughs> when you know that there's something that you're trying to get to and you just can't get to it, that's what pisses me off. And I feel like that's, but I feel like that's what we all go through. And I just wish that there was a, not that there was a formula, but I wish there was a formula. I wish that I could go, oh, let me just plug in these character traits. And this is the trajectory. And these are the, you know, here's my midpoint and here's my act one break and whatever. And although I guess maybe AI is going to create this for me, right? But I just wish it was a little bit easier because sometimes, I fight with my theme and I re and I start with one idea of what it is. And then I get to the end and I go, Oh, that was the wrong theme. And you have to go back through it and go, well, let me go through the whole thing and let it ripple through. Um, again, it's this project that I'm working with. I thought I was working writing one script and they were like, no, 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 you're writing a different script. Still good. Still fun. That doesn't happen every time. That happens every time to me. It does. I've That's never not had life.
1: that happen. I've never not had that happen. <laughs> That's
0: it what's has to
1: about
0: it. It has to teach you. It's like you have to write it for it to teach you what it's actually about. And it's like that gap between starting it with the excitement of what you thought it was about and then learning that it's something else can be so challenging. It can be so heartbreaking or challenging. I, I
2: don't know what you guys are talking about. Every first draft I've written is like genius. <laughs> <Okay>. Just like... <laughs> diamonds
3: on the page (laughs) but here's the thing I don't understand is like how then you can get something like Casablanca that wasn't finished you know that they were writing as they go how did they do that and I just I was just re-watching The Born Identity and I was like I'd heard the story I'd had um, lunch with the executive on the show on the movie and he said yeah we were running and gunning we did not have an ending for this movie we were running and we were creating writing scenes as Jason Bourne was running through the Berlin train station. We were throwing pages. Like it was like,
1: I'll tell you, I'll tell you. Feature means, animation. It, it, Let's it, talk it, about animation feature like animation. The animation That's can it. be like that. And what happens is you're going so fast that all of the kind of self-doubt and, and stuff that pushes good stuff down, it you don't have time for it. And so it's this weird experience of it just comes out. Like under that pressure cooker, you just you don't have time to avoid it. You it just erupts under the stress of it. I, I would not suggest it as a technique, and yet it does sometimes work.
3: <laughs> yeah, that'd be interesting to see if there's a way to like put people through boot camp where their life is on the line and they have to write a screenplay as quickly as human possible. Let's see how it comes. That out. sounds
2: like a terrible reality show. Write or die. It's called write or die. What do you think happens to most writers? (laughs) Exactly,
3: we would all die.
0: That might get greenlit. I wonder if we should protect that. Maybe we cut that from the show because Lauren, you might actually have a really sellable idea there. (laughs) Write or die. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Like the what the room you're in, the room you're in, like it's oh my god, bikes on each side. The ceiling is coming in. It gets really hot. Like every time you up the physical stakes to see if you can not get up and go to the bathroom and eat chips like you must stay, like wind is blowing on you, your kids yelling in your ear. Like what can you handle and keep writing? I, I'm gonna sell this reality show. Let's do it. Right. Yeah. Isn't
0: that just being a writer though? I, I don't know. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um Kelly, the last question we always ask is, and for you it can be about your work as an executive developing or your writing because you have such a storied career, but we like to ask what is one scene that you would love to be remembered for and why?
3: Oh when seen.
0: Whatever. You know, it could also be project or like, it's a legacy related question. And I'd I'd be curious to hear how you, how you interpret it and what you think.
3: The legacy question. You know, someone asked me uh, a couple years ago, um, when I first started on this trajectory, she said, what's your magnum opus? And I thought, well, that's a really big, heady, kind of arrogant thing to ask someone. Because I don't think you know what it is until you've done it. I think you just have to bring as much of yourself to whatever project. So I don't know that I know what it is yet. I think I'm, I don't think I'm, I feel like a baby right now. And I feel like I, it's going to come out eventually. But I don't know that I've plumbed the depths of my own emotional I'm not going to say trauma because trauma means that it would have to be terrible, but I think there's probably something in me that I'm not yet—I've not yet figured out what I want to say. I don't have my catcher in the rye yet, but I don't think that—I don't think that catcher in the rye was meant to be catcher in the rye. I feel like some some of these things are—they become part of the zeitgeist. They become legacy after the fact. I think that Is I read a
1: show you helped create that you would look back as an executive and say that you were so proud of having helped usher that show on, you know, cause you talked about how important it was. And it's very legit uh, to be an executive and help people uh, articulate and create their and manifest their shows and dreams. Is there anything that, that you you feel so glad that you were one of
3: the birth mothers? Yeah, I would say, uh, I would say anything um, for sure, you know, living single people come up to me all the time and say how much living single meant to them. They still say that about girlfriends and they're sort of a cut of the same cloth. I think there were women out there who were desperate to see themselves on television. And I do think that had I not been there in that executive role, they may not have lived because I think particularly girlfriends, there was a lot of a lot of points in in the, the birth of that show that it could have died. That I had to stand up and say, No, 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 we have to keep going. We have to keep going. We sh- we reshot, we we recast some uh characters. Um, we couldn't find Golden Brooks until I brought her to my casting director and I said, I just saw her on Frank's place, you gotta put her in. We had some story things that happened in the very beginning, um, where I actually went to my boss and I pitched him the 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 story, and then I went and pitched it to the writers because they hadn't cracked it. So I do think that there's the DM, my DNA is in both of those, obviously as a black woman. So yeah, I think you're right. that the maybe in hindsight. And yet, I feel like there's a little bit of a distance because when you're development executive, you step off the train after thirteen episodes and somebody else carries that all the way through every season and so what they remember what the show remembers what those 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 writers and those um directors and the and the talent in the trenches remember is not that you had the first meeting with Queen Latifah with your boss uh and that you packaged her with Kim Coles and that everybody else came after they don't hear they don't remember that they remember oh that person who was our production executive was in the trenches with us year, year after year and I I had at one point when when Linwood Boomer won his Emmy and got up and he gave his Emmy speech, um, and he didn't mention me at all. And I had gone through eight drafts of the script with him. Granted, it was perfect on on draft two. We just like screwed around for another six, you know, drafts just so that we could hold on to it. Honestly, Um, but when he didn't mention me because and I was the one who bought the script. I was the the first call, you know. i was i was hurt but i also remembered that's why i wanted to become a seller because i wanted to be more close to the i wanted to be close to the product i wanted people to be remember that i was part of the blood sweat and tears of the of the show and i wanted to now now i'm gonna be that person right i will be that person um but yeah it's so awesome
1: like it's such a trajectory right like slowly stepping closer and closer to be that person because that's where you
2: where you are and where
1: you need to be and where the universe needs you to be so I love that thank you so much for coming on the show what an incredible insights you have everyone go get her book it's
3: amazing yes thank you so much thank you for having me I'm honored honestly after listening to you guys podcast and Meg I saw you at uh, Austin Film Festival years ago and I thought oh my God, this woman is, I want to be her so badly. And then meeting Lori and I was just like, I thought what a great team. You are all amazing. Jeff, you couldn't have been lovelier. I'm just like, I feel like so um, honored to be part of this little group here. The so. The family. Yay. Yeah. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much for listening, everyone. That was super fun.
2: And if you haven't joined, we'd really like to recommend the TSL Facebook group. It's a great place where you can meet other writers and it's all about community and finding support um, outside in addition to the show.
1: We also have some amazing Patreon workshops to check out. So come on over, you don't wanna miss it.
2: So uh, thank you so much everybody. Thank you so much to our guests and to our producers, Jeff and Savannah and our intern Jason. And remember you are not alone and keep writing.